Well, friends, as you know, if you've been coming here the last few weeks during Advent, we have been uh, looking at different pieces of the armor of God and what we have affectionately called now Advent armor, and we're doing that for Christmas Day, even calling it Advent armor. That's okay. And then also a sermon in the new year um, in a couple of weeks, um, including um, the last of the Advent armor uh, prayers in the Spirit. But uh, today we're thinking of uh, the sword of the Spirit and um, how that relates to Jesus, who is the Word of God. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And again, this goes with, we're thinking about this, you've got to get this in your mind, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're going to eventually connect that all together during the message. But um, as we think about that, we're looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You can look up at some point this week, Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, and see how that may tie in as well. We're not going to be looking at that this morning. John 1, verses 1 through 18, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and in, is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beloved in Christ, a peek, a peek into my 12th grade catechism class. We begin before we open with prayer, reviewing last week. I choose a student, Austin DeWard, for example. Let's review. Austin, when we think about our fall into sin, sin has caused a big problem in your life, Austin DeWard. I assure him it's caused the problem in my life too. 
You have a legal status problem before God. God looks at you and says, Austin, because of your sin, you are guilty before me. Austin, you have a guilty stamp right on your forehead. You can't see it in the mirror, but it's there, and that is not a good thing. That means the punishment of hell is what you face when you die. That's not good for us, is it, Austin? Because that's my problem too, I tell him. So I continue. But God's word tells us, Austin, that because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, your sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, effectively wiping away, erasing that guilty stamp from your forehead and replacing it with what new legal status term, Austin? And Austin answers, not guilty. And then Austin, without breaking a sweat, throws out a younger generation word to his older generation teacher. He says, facts. And his older generation teacher bursts out laughing, but he has no idea what Austin has said or what it means. Austin, what did you say? I said, facts. Well, what does that mean? Austin explains. You know, like when something is true, reliable, it's the truth. Facts. Oh, I see. You mean like if I said, word. <laughs> Choosing an apparently archaic and obsolete slang term from 2003. Word. Truth. And he shakes his head, yeah. Facts. And I say, got it. Let's open with prayer. Facts. Word. John, the gospel writer, Jesus' disciple, he uses the word, word, as he began his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the Greek audience, the Gentile audience who would end up reading this gospel would have been all over this. In the beginning was the word, and they'd think, of course, this author is referring to reason and truth that's in our minds. It's where meaning comes from. And that's how they thought of the universe, too, the Greeks did. Their philosophy to explain the meaning of life was all about reason and truth, facts, the word, the rational principle that governed all things, the universe, the word. In the beginning was the word. Greeks would have loved it. What a hook for them. They'd be like, tell us more, John. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Yeah, reason, truth, rationality, the principle behind everything. The Gentiles, the Greeks would have loved it. Jews loved it too. Because for them, when they heard the word word, dabar in Hebrew came from the verb to speak, they immediately thought of God, God's word, God speaks, and things always happen when God speaks. So for John to say in the beginning was the word, that's a hook for the Jews too. They'd be like, yeah, you got that right. For them, word and God went together like hand and glove. Tell us more. The Jews reading John's gospel here would have loved it. In the beginning was the word. It's like how Genesis starts. In the beginning, John drew them right in. Tell us more, John. John, the gospel writer, was genius. He hooked the two main groups of people back then into this book with one opening sentence. In the beginning was the word. We're about to hear what someone thinks is the meaning of life. The source of life. Tell us more, John. But before he gets to the main point of his opening chapter, 
He's going to whet their appetite for it. He's going to use what I'm going to affectionately call, and maybe I'm coining a new term, but I don't care, a paragraph appositive. Some of you know what an appositive is. I just taught my catechism class about that. You ask them, where is something like an appositive found in the Apostles' Creed? They'd be able to tell you, maybe, if they listen. An appositive is a grammatical thing that goes like this. I'll give you an example. My pet, a German shepherd named Richard, barks too much. That's an appositive. It's when I further explain something about the subject in my sentence. In this case, my pet, a German shepherd named Richard, that's the appositive, it tells us something more about my pet. My pet, the one who is a German shepherd named Richard, barks too much. Now, why do I mention this? Because John is kind of doing the same thing here on a grander scale, using paragraphs. It's a paragraph, a positive. In the beginning was the word. And then he tells us something more about the word of God before he gets to his main point. Before I say what I really can't wait to tell you, here's some more stuff about that word. And the Greeks and the Jews would all agree. Through the word, all things were made. And they'd say, yeah, they sure were. Greeks would say, yes, the word, the logos is the Greek word some of you have been waiting for. The logos, the word, the rational principle that governs all things. Through that logos, things were made. But the Jews would be pulled in also. Through the word of God, the dabar, God speaking, the creation was created out of nothing but God's word. And John would go on. Without the word, nothing was made that has been made. For the word, in the word is life. And, and that life was light for all people. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. And both groups are loving it. The Greeks understand that the word means life and light for us. It's the explanation for everything that exists. And we're kind of living in the dark trying to figure out this word thing. Trying to figure out the meaning of life. The rational principle that governs all things. And the Jews would say, well, we'd love to figure out how it is that we can be with God. But we're so in the dark. And he's so filled with light. He's so holy other. We can't fathom God and his word. And then John keeps going with this little aside, this paragraph's long, a positive. There's this man named John. That's John the Baptist, not the writer of the book. He was sent by God to point to the word, to the rational principle, to the meaning of life, to the light, because that word, the light, was coming into the world. And both groups would be, wow we got to hook up with this John character and find out some more. He might be able to help us on our quest to figure out the meaning of life. The Greeks would say that, and the Jews would say, to help us get a good look at God himself. Oh, and listen to what he says. The light is coming into the world, and we got to find out where and how. We've got to receive him. We can't miss this. And the Greeks would be all over this. Where's this John who can help us understand the Logos better? And the Jews would be, yeah, where is he? He can get us closer to God and God's word. Of course, John the Baptist is dead by this time. That's not going to be easy for either group. So from verse 3 through verse 13 is this huge paragraphs long appositive. In the beginning was the word. He made the world. He gives light. He's life. There's a guy who knows more about him than we might, and we don't want to miss him. If it turns out this John the Baptist knows what he's talking about. Huge or positive. We know all these extra things about the word. 
And then just like in a positive, my pet, a German shepherd named Richard, barks too much. That's the main point. The word who you two groups both agree is the creator of the universe, that word, verse 14, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Both groups of people, surely their jaws would have dropped. Impossible. How can that be? A rational principle responsible for governing the universe can't possibly become flesh. God speaking creation into existence out of nothing. God impossibly glorious about whom we say nothing can even live in his presence because of his holiness. No way. He can't possibly become flesh and bone and blood and skin. Can't possibly be right here with us. God in the flesh, do you know what you're saying, John? And perhaps John would say, I sure do. In fact, to borrow from my buddy Luke, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and the Virgin Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn, no guest room available for them. So not only was God, was the Word, walking among us, living, breathing, talking, not only that, that divine Word was born a baby, just like all of you. God took on human flesh and lived among us. The Word, the one who created the world, the one who is in an intimate relationship with the Father, the one who sits at God's right hand, the one who is responsible for governing the entire universe, the one who is God, the one who is the giver of life, the maker of life, the one who can enlighten the whole world, the one who shines in this dark world of sin and the devil and death. None of that can overcome him. That word, second person of the triune God, God himself did the impossible, took on human flesh. And there will be many who do not recognize him, many who do not receive him, but for those who do, you become children of God. He will live in you. This is the incarnation, beloved. Word. God himself became flesh, became one of us, and he reveals God the Father to us. And why wouldn't he? He was with the Father before creation. He always existed with his Father and the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery of the incarnation, beloved church. And, and you believe the miracle. You believe it, that, that God himself set aside the glory of heaven and came to our world, to a world dead in sin, to a world incapable of saving themselves, to a world seeking but never figuring out answers, to a world that suffers, that is full of pain and sorrow and death. He came to fix all that for you and me. John tells us he came from the Father full of grace and truth, and from him we receive grace on top of grace, for through him God's own Son, who is exactly like God in every conceivable way. He is God. He makes God known to us. He does what is impossible for us to do. He makes the incomprehensible God the God we can know. 
the incomprehensible, who all humanity wants to know about. We say it in different ways, but it amounts to the same thing. We want to know the meaning of life. We want to know where we came from. We want to know who we are and if there's a God. We want to live forever. We want to know if the pain and the suffering will really go away. All those incomprehensible things. We want to know God. We want answers. Right here in John chapter 1, John tells us how to get those answers. We have only to look at the one who was incarnated, the one named Jesus. Jesus makes God plain as day to us. He reveals God to us. He's the one-of-a-kind expression of God because he is God, God in the flesh, the Word made flesh for us. Look at Jesus. Look, Look at the Word become flesh, and you're looking at God himself. The incomprehensible God was right here. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. We missed it. So what do we do? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6 that for our battle against the rulers, authorities, the spiritual forces of evil, the powers of this dark world, to battle against those things, to shed light on this dark world, we need to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's that word again, the word of God. Could it be that the word of God, God become flesh? Could it be that the one we meet in the word of God is the one who took on human flesh? That in the word of God, we meet Jesus who created the world with God the Father? And the answer is yes, of course. That's how we meet him. In the written word, we meet the word made flesh. We take up that piece of armor. You know why? Not just because Paul says to. We do it for that reason too, but we take it up also because Jesus did. Jesus, when tempted by Satan three times, he took up the word of God, the written word, and used it like a sword to ward off the temptations by Satan, Luke 4. Satan couldn't stand up to the word of God. Satan couldn't defeat this sword of the Spirit. And on the cross, surely Jesus, though beaten and whipped and nailed to the cross for our sins, quoted the word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm Psalm 22. The word of God, we legitimately could say, was the sword that defeated sin, the devil, and death on the cross. The word became flesh, was the sword that defeated our bitterest enemies. And that word is given to us who believe in Jesus. We take up that same sword, the word of God, when we lift up the written word of God in the same way that the word became flesh, brought Satan to defeat. The written word of God, wielded like a sword by God's children, brings Satan and his temptation and his lies to nothing in our lives. Hebrews 4 tells us, You read it earlier. For the word of God is alive and active. 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That word is the sword we carry every day to fight the battles, the hatred, the arrows that Satan shoots at us. So how do we take up the word of God, the sword of the spirit? Three things about that. First, we take up the word of God and confidently study that word to take our stand against Satan and his lies. As one writer says it, read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it. Psalm 119, verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Memorize the word of God, friends. Some of you do, faithfully. A verse a week, maybe? Confidently study the word to take your stand. We're coming up on that time when we make resolutions. A verse a week. A verse a week. Second, we take up the word of God and encouragingly share that word so that others can begin to take their stand. Share the word of good news. Share the news that God himself became flesh, became one of us, and paid for our sins at the cross, and then rose from the dead for our eternal life. Encouragingly share the word so others can take their stand. God's word doesn't return to him empty. And third, we take up the word of God and hopefully cling to that word as we take our stand in the end. We have a sure hope that we will stand, take up the armor, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. We hopefully, full of hope, that is, we cling to the word of God, because in the end, we stand with him. Listen to what the book of Revelation chapter 19 says about the word of God. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And do you know what that faithful and true rider, whose name is the Word of God, will do? Do you know, friends, what this word made flesh will do? Do you know what Jesus will do? Do you know what his word tells us he will do when the end comes, when he comes the second time, when he returns, when he advents in once more? He tells us that at the end, this rider named the word of God will come again, the armies of heaven following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And beloved, no human army no army of the devil will stand against him. They will be thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest will be killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on that horse. His name is the Word of God, beloved. That's the one who will save us, who will usher us into a new heavens and new earth, all creation made new. 
John says that. Same John who wrote the gospel. Says that in that strange vision of revelation. But he also records Jesus' own words in his gospel. John 12, the word of God, Jesus says, There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words I have spoken and condemned them at the last day. They will, they will condemn them at the last day, the word of God. So the question for each of us right now is this. Have you taken up and are you wearing the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God? Are you? Do you believe that God himself became flesh for you, died and rose for you? What are you wearing? No, no, that, that's not the real question. And believe it or not, I, I may have mentioned this before, the Academy Awards, the pre-show, red carpet, mind you, all those stars, celebrities in their finery. Finally, the pre-show, we find some redeeming quality to it. The red carpet interviewers, they desperately sidle up to the nearest star and breathlessly ask, oh, who are you wearing? Who are you wearing? To which the celebrity must answer with, with deep admiration, oh, Valentino, of course, Ralph Lauren, Versace, Prada, De La Renta. And they rattle off the names of their popular designers with a star-struck reverence of their very own. That's who I'm wearing. They're right. The question isn't what are you wearing? The real question is, who? Who are you wearing? And your answer and my answer must be, I'm wearing the sword of the Spirit, who is the Word of God, the Word made flesh, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, faithful and true, Word. Facts. Facts. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that you do tell us who you are in your written word to us, that you are the word made flesh, and that you use the gospel writer John to tell that to huge groups of people, the Greeks and the Jews, and you say that those who receive you, who put on that sword, who put on the word of God, who put on you, Lord God, you say that those who receive you, you give the right to become children of God, your children, all because you, Lord God, took on human flesh word, facts, facts. Thank you for teaching us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Let all God's people say, amen.